Hello everyone, this is the Journal of Animal Ecology podcast. My name is Julie Sheard and today I am joined by Maren Willenreuter and Zachary Fuller. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Hi, Julie. Hi. Now, we're going to be chatting a little bit about the upcoming Journal of Animal Ecology special feature, Understanding Climate Change Response in the Age of Genomics, which you guest edited together with Leslie Lancaster, David Berger, Matthew Barber and Cecil Yentoft. But before we dive in, maybe you could just say a few words about yourselves. Marin, why don't you go first? Yes, sure. Well, first of all, Julie, thank you very much for giving us a chance to talk about this special issue. So a little bit about myself. Um, I guess like many biologists, I have been long interested in the diversity of life um, in my research and related questions such as how many species are there? Why are some groups of organisms so much more diverse than others? How do environmental and biological traits influence things like speciation rate, but also rates of molecular evolution? And in my own work as a researcher, I have always strived to use both descriptive and experimental field and laboratory studies. And I combine these with genomic analysis. I've done quite varied work and also worked and lived in different countries. So I used to work on the ecology and speciation of marine fishes in Australia and New Zealand. I'm in Australia where I did my master's degree, in Australia where I did my PhD, and I still have very much an active interest in that. But I also have an active uh, research interest in insects, um, insects such as damselflies and seaweed flies. And I have studied those during my eight years at the University of Lund in Sweden. And I studied them really to understand the ways that species can adapt to the environment. So I guess as a biologist and to tell you a little bit about myself, as part of all of these research projects, which you know now range really from fish to flies, I have been investigating for a long time the responses of species to environmental stressors. And as we all know, temperature is really one of the main stressors that is impacting animal species around the globe. And I've done that in the pursuit to better understand how species deal with the changing future. Now, a lot about this can be learned by studying the genome of species. And so to sum it all up, I guess, this special issue is really dear to me because it really closely aligns with my research interests. Thank you, Marin. And what about you, Zach? Sure. Um, so currently, I'm a statistical geneticist at 23andMe, which is a personal genomics company. Uh, my main research interests lie in using genetics and genomics to help better understand biological processes and predict future responses in individuals and populations. Uh, so in my current position, I do this in humans uh, by using over 6 million individuals in our database to try and uncover genes involved in diseases or predict drug targets or therapeutics that can be used to prevent those. Um, however, previously in my PhD and postdoctoral work, uh, this interest was applied to a variety of different species, uh, including fruit flies, honeybees, corals, and corn snakes. Uh, so much of the motivation there was in using the same type of genomic approach to better understand and predict population responses, uh, mainly to rapid climate change uh, in the set of species. So for example, during my PhD, I studied how honeybees are responding to habitat fragmentation in East Africa. And during my postdoc, I sequenced the genomes of different coral species. 
so in this work in the corals, uh, we use this genomic data to then try and predict how different individuals would respond to increased seawater temperatures based on their underlying genetics. Great, thank you. I noticed both of you have worked on a broad range of taxa. Like Marin, you mentioned marine fish, and you both work on insects. And Sack, you also worked on corals and reptiles and humans. Is this normal within the field of genomics? Yeah, and I think it's becoming even more common because, uh, you know, the same approaches and same sorts of methods that you use to try to study questions in these species are all the same. So, you know, for me, it's just a different species, but it's the same set of underlying approaches that can be applied to all of them. Oh, that's great. Okay, so let's take a look at this special feature. You're six editors, and I was just wondering, how did you find each other? Was there like a special conference? What was the motivation for creating this special feature in the first place? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess I should start out by saying that, of course, um, the underlying motivation really come, comes from the fact that there's really no abundant evidence that anthropogenic climate change is rapidly transforming environments and that this poses a major threat to species and ecosystems worldwide. And really that has become pretty clear to me and the other editors while doing our own research. For example, Leslie, um, so Leslie Lancaster, one of the editors, Leslie and I, we spent several years at Lund University in Sweden. We were in the same department and we were both working on this damselfly species, Schnorr elegans, the blue-tailed damselfly. And in our own research projects, we both saw that this species of damselfly, but also other damselfly species and really... In a lot of places where we were looking, we saw that they were undergoing rapid range expansions. And we, of course, found that temperature was the main trigger for that. So moving forward to 2019, Zach, who has been working on fruit flies and other critters, so Zach, Leslie and I, we got chatting about the need of genomics to lend insights into climate change responses in animals. And... This really motivated us to put together a symposium in 2019 at the SMBE meeting. This is the meeting organized by the Society for Molecular Biology and Evolution. And the title of our symposium was Understanding the Genomics of Climate Change Responses. In a way, you know, the symposium really set the seat for the special issue. And Leslie, as one of the senior editors of the Journal of um, animal ecology, then came up with the idea to sort of expand on the symposium idea and to put together a special issue um, with Zach and myself and also with a few other people from the journal. And in fact, if you look at the special issue and the different contributions, you will see that some of them actually came from our SMBE symposium that some of these people gave a talk. So thinking back and thinking about what it was and what we wanted to create with a special issue, I guess a number of things come to mind. Um, I'll mention some of them. So of course, with the special issue, we really wanted to highlight that the impacts of climate change are not just something that, you know, that, that is happening in the distant future, but it's something that is happening now. And we can see and feel that. Species are declining in some places and are becoming more abundant in others. We also wanted to highlight that 
a greater understanding of how animal populations can respond to changing environment will help to develop good conservation and mitigation strategies. And that this is really urgent to do and to invest in. And lastly, I guess, because the focus in this, of the special issue was on genomic research, we felt that this was the time was ripe to do something like that, because the field of genomics has really made quite some significant leaps um, due to advancements in sequencing technologies, but also you know, associated downstream analysis to analyze large data sets. So it's a very timely issue to look at climate change impacts using a genomics angle. And it's particularly important for all of us that are working on non-model species in a field setting. Um, and so because nowadays with the decrease um, in the costs of doing genomic analysis, we can actually now study these animals um, and we can study them at population-wide scales. And that includes those that are, of course, at greatest risk from the effects of climate change. So all of this together, um, we're basically back in August 2020, we announced the call for the special issue. Um, and we said that we really were keen to get researchers together, together to look into the various ways that genomics can lend insights into how different animals cope with a warming climate. Fantastic. This symposium, that it was in 2019, was that pre-corona? Yes. So everyone met in person and you were able to keep contact through this, these trying times? It was actually held in the UK and Zach, Leslie and I we were symposium organizers. It, um, I didn't, I wasn't there in person in the end because I couldn't travel from New Zealand because of family reasons, but we all created it together and selected the abstracts. And then Zach and Leslie were there on the day and shared the symposium and we just continued talking about it. So that's how it was done. Yeah, it was back in 2019. Wow, time flies. And what about you, Zach? How did you get involved? Yeah, so in my work, especially with the corals, this was focused on trying to predict and understand responses to climate change using genomics. Um, and so I had been familiar with Marin's work uh, previously. And so in trying to think of a, a symposium that we could try to put together at the, at the SMBE meeting and thinking of other researchers with similar interests, uh, Marin immediately came to mind. And so I contacted her. Um, and then she then put us in contact with Leslie as well. And so the three of us then were able to work on the symposium. Um, and it was a really exciting experience to try to, you know, put together the set of talks from a diverse set of organisms um, and then hear about some of the other cutting edge work going on in the field. Oh, awesome. Just in case there are people listening to this podcast who, like me, are very new to genomics, um, maybe you could just give a, a quick description of what genomics is. Sure. Uh, so genomics for me, I kind of think of it as the study of all the base pairs that make up an individual's genome. Uh, so I like to think of this as the study of, you know, quote unquote, big data, uh, because it's really trying to understand how the millions and billions of base pairs that make up an individual's genome all interact to generate biological processes. And so I think it's a really exciting field because you're analyzing what's, you know, the readout of what's essentially a simple molecular sequence, then trying to understand how it forms the complexity of all of life. Um, so genomics has really revolutionized the way that we think about biology. Um, it 
gives us the ability to understand how individuals and populations respond to changing environments uh, over time and uh, gives us the ability to try to pin down the specific genes or regions of the genome that are involved in this response. And for this special issue, you sort of highlighted the importance of climate change. It's in the title, like understanding climate change in the age of genomics. Um, for me, one of the sort of um, more normal methods for, or normal is probably not the right word, but one of the methods I'm familiar with is uh, species distribution modeling and niche modeling, um, where we try to understand what will happen to species ranges and their distributions as climate changes. Um, but there are some limitations to this. Could we maybe say, like, what is it that genomics brings to the table in understanding the effects of climate change? Sure. Yeah. So while these types of models, I think, you know, have been very influential, as I'm sure you're, you're obviously familiar with, uh, I think one of the biggest limitations is that they don't often account for population variation or the potential for evolutionary change. Uh, so this is, you know, change in the uh, genomes of individuals within the species over time in response to some uh, evolutionary pressure. Uh, so in general, they assume that these niches remain constant over time. And this is where I think that genomics can really be incredibly powerful here, um, is it can help provide information about genetic variation between individuals in a population, and importantly, how this variation changes over time. Uh, so by incorporating genomics, uh, we can account for many key processes in these types of predictions about species distributions, uh, including adaptation, dispersal, and demographic changes, all related to the underlying uh, genomics. So several papers in this special feature, I think, highlight how genomics can be incorporated with these types of models and used to better understand how species might respond to climate change, uh, whether that's through evolutionary adaptation, rain shifts, or plastic phenotypic responses, um, or some combination of all three. Uh, so for example, we have several papers about understanding how species might disperse or move from their current environment, uh, including in protists in a study by Mormon and colleagues and damselflies by uh, Dudaniak et al. So focusing in on the genome, how might we actually be able to uh, track the consequences of climate change in an organism's genome? So one thing that genomics can be uh, really powerful for is understanding the whole history of a species and population. Uh, so we can understand how these species and populations have responded to uh, evolutionary pressures in the past, as well as, you know, the very recent past. And so this gives us the ability to study and to try to infer genes or regions of the genome that are currently uh, adapting in response to current pressures. So for instance, by sequencing many individuals in a population, we can try to look at those regions of the genome that are currently uh, underlying adaptive responses to climate change. And then we can try to use that same information to predict how uh, species might adapt in the future. And how do you get the data from the past? Is that from museum records or? No, so each individual's uh, genome is kind of a, a record of its entire evolutionary history and all of the individual's ancestors that have contributed to that genome at present. And so this gives us a way to both study that individual as well as its entire uh, history within that species or population. I'm so glad I asked that question. That's awesome. <laughs> I've never thought about the fact that your history is in your genome. Yep, exactly. Of course it is, yeah amazing. 
Okay, so I've skimmed through the list of these uh, special feature papers and there are over 10 papers included and I think almost as many taxas. So I was thinking maybe you could just both uh, give us some highlights from reading the papers. Was there anything that stood out to you? Anything you think was particularly interesting? Maren? Yeah, well, yeah, I think we're all very proud of how the special issue turned out. As you said, over 10 papers um, and we are showcasing highly diverse topics and approaches on many different taxa, which really also highlights the challenges, right, of working in this field. We have both empirical field and laboratory studies in the special issue, but also conceptual papers. So let me pick maybe two to talk about. So the first paper that I would like to highlight is a paper by Emily Bolanger, um, and her colleagues. I really enjoyed that paper. It's it's called Climate Differently Influences Genomic Patterns of Two Sympatric Fish Species. Um, so not only did she and her team study fish, which of course, you know, I've got a huge research background in fish myself, so they are among my favorite study organisms. But what I really liked about their work is that they also tied in really nicely the different biologies of the species in their genomic work. So what they were interested in is how the population structure and adaptive genomic signatures of aquatic species are impacted by movement rates. So let's unpack that. Um, what I mean by adaptive genomic signatures are basically genetic changes in individuals that confer an adaptive benefit to those individuals in a certain environmental setting. And this could be, for instance, um, better increased growth rates or higher survival. I will explain um, some of the some of this a little bit more in a moment. So what they did is that they set out um, two fish species. So one of them um, was the the red stri the striped red mullet, and the other species was the white sea bream. The important thing to note here is that the mullet is a species that shows a much reduced dispersal ability when we compare this to the sea bream. And they studied these two species in across replicate locations um, in the Mediterranean Sea. And this is an area that ranks amongst the ocean basins most affected by climate change and human pressure. So really important place. What they then used, so they sampled these two species across different locations. And then they applied a technique that is called genotyping by sequencing. And it is really just a technique that helps you to generate thousands of molecular markers across the genome of a species. And these markers are called single nucleotide polymorphisms. They're just really single base pair mutations in the DNA. So think like a T instead of a C. So they use these thousands of single nucleotide polymorphisms um, that they basically you know, created for each individual that they sampled across these different sampling locations to ask two questions. They ask, what is the population structure of each species? And is there any evidence for climate-associated genomic signatures um, that would indicate selection, and in this case, temperature selection? And they hypothesized that these two patterns would be stronger in the less mobile species. And the reason for that is that if you are less mobile, you have less exchange with individuals across your range. And so that creates restricted gene flow. 
um, which then in turn facilitates a fixation of locally adapted alleles due to smaller effective population size. So you have a higher potential for selection to basically have an impact on the genome. So as I said, they tried to look at two things, population structure and evidence that selection is acting on the genome. How do you look into these two things using these single nucleotide polymorphisms across the genome? Well, population structure basically just gets detected um, when you find clusters of individuals that share similar polymorphisms. So you look at all of these thousands of single nucleotide polymorphisms and you look, are there any clusters? Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is looking for evidence of selection on the genome, looking for evidence of this. And this, there are many, many tests to do that. These are statistical tests, but they, most of them have in common that they're looking at a pattern um, of regions that behave differently from the rest, so different from what we call neutral or background sort of variation. So these genomic regions that are under selection, they basically exhibit different levels of base pair variation and also differentiation from the rest, and this allows you to detect that. Now let's um, look at what they found. They found that their predictions were actually correct and that movement rates had a large impact on the both the genomic structure, so the population structure of species, but also selection, so how well selection could act on the genome. The Seabream, and remember, this is a species with really good movement rates, so high dispersal, showed panmixia across the Mediterranean Sea. And by panmixia, we mean the populations show really high gene flow, they're highly connected, and often by that we mean it kind of acts as one big group, so there are no subclusters. If we look at the mullet, which is a species, again here, with the reduced risk dispersal, reduced movement rates, they detected um, population structure across the Mediterranean Sea, so clusters of these single nucleotide polymorphisms, several clusters actually. They also found um, clear evidence that selection is acting on these clusters and that the genetic clusters were significantly correlated to summer and winter temperatures. So clear evidence for genomic adaptation. I really like the study because I think not only is the finding important because it highlights the importance of biological traits such as movement behaviors and shaping the genome, um, but it also has clear applied relevance. So we, we know many species, you know, some have really high dispersal or high movement rates, whereas others don't have that. And so the notion that this can really lead to locally adapted subclusters is really important and is something that can be used to inform um, the preservation um, of these subclusters. For instance, when you are designing marine protected areas or any protected areas. It helps you in the design of these, carefully think about the networks and how these marine protected areas would have to be connected to ensure that the overall genetic diversity of the mullet could be preserved because what you find on one end of the range is quite different from the other, um, other side of the range because of the substructure and also of the impact of um, of temperature or climate on the genomic signatures. So if we want to protect the overall resilience of a species um, and want to make sure that the species can respond to 
climate change or environmental stressors, this is really important information to take into account. That sounds really interesting. I, I really like a study when it combines both the basic science and the applied science and gives you like a conservation perspective on top of it, which it sounds like it's the case here. So thank you for telling us about this paper. What's your second choice? <laughs> My second pick um, is a more conceptual piece. And this piece was done by um, Rebecca Ullman and Jeffrey Hutchins and is entitled Genomic Reaction Norms Informed Predictions of Plastic and Adaptive Responses to Climate Change. Now I should probably note that Jeffrey, as many of you know, has recently passed away. Actually, while this paper was under revision and his passing, I mean, he was a, a very influential person in biology. His passing has left a big hole in the research community. So in a way, I think this paper is particularly is a particularly special contribution. Now, what I really liked about the paper is, um, is, is the emphasis of the authors on the need to integrate the phenotype better in genomic studies um, and also to explicitly test for adaptation. They basically argue that too many studies these days are done in isolation from phenotypic effects. So in other words, without linking the genotype to the phenotype. Looking back at the title, let's talk a little bit about the paper. So the the title was quite complicated. So, so first, maybe let's have a bit of a look at it. What are actually genomic reaction norms? When we talk about genomic, genomic reaction norms, um, we usually talk about gene expression phenotypes. So gene expression, um, what we mean by that is, this is, these are mRNA transcripts, and these are also called messenger RNA, that are being generated when a gene is transcribed. So we could look at any tissue, for instance, um, or blood or anything like that. For instance, after I had a meal, there will be specific mRNA transcripts in my bloodstream and things like that that will help me to digest the food. So it's a really great way to basically get insights into what is happening in the organism right now, right here. So you can measure these mRNA transcripts, and as I said, these are just called gene expression phenotypes um, here for the study. So the way you can actually study them is that you can study a species across an environmental gradient, and you can move along this environmental gradient and collect different genotypes along this gradient, and then you take them all back to the lab, and you put them in what we call a common garden setting kind of implies it's something that we do with plants, but it's actually something that we do with animal species too. Um, the common garden really just refers to a controlled setting, could be a garden, but in, in, in case of fish, for instance, it would be tanks that are just maintained in the very same way, same temperature, same flow rate, all of that. So by keeping a controlled setting, you keep the environment consistent and what that does is that it helps to remove the confounding effect of the environment and it really allows us to study the genetics of adaptation in a much more controlled way. Because you're right, if you compare it and you would study genetics of adaptation out in the wild along this environmental gradient, you're really unsure, is this just an impact because of the different environment? Or So this is a really neat way to basically start to disentangle things. Typically in the past, you know, common garden experiments are really old. They have 
um, been used for a long time. So typically in the past, traits such as life history, life history traits um, or differences in phenology were often studied in these common garden settings. So first of all, the idea of the authors to use these gene expression um, phenotypes as a trait, it's pretty novel. Um, <clears throat> so what they suggest is to... Um, is, is to study the impact of different temperature settings and different genotypes and to use, as I said, gene expression as a phenotype. So you collect genotypes along an environmental gradient. And by doing that, you have also these different genotypes. You look at the gene expression levels in a common garden settings. Um, and when you do this, so combining these genomic reaction norms using the gene expression phenotypes, um, and thus treating gene expression like this phenotype, it, it allows researchers to do a number of things. And I think that is quite fascinating. So first of all, by combining these different approaches, you can disentangle plastic and adaptive responses to the environment. What we mean by the term plastic is, so plasticity denotes the ability of the same genotype to express different phenotypes in response to different ecological settings. Adaptation is different, and as highlighted before, um, say in the mullet, um, it's caused by fixed genotype differences, and it basically leads to adaptive responses in certain environments. So some individuals that have these fixed genotype differences, um, they do better under certain environment, environmental settings than others. So they have increased survival or increased um, reproductive output or better growth rates, something like that. So you can disentangle plastic and adaptive responses. And you look at these, um, so you use these experiments and you can do two things. So if you detect in the gene expression profiles fixed expression differences across different common garden settings, and these are fixed expression differences by the same genotypes, that really indicates adaptation. So that is adaptive genomic changes have occurred in the genotype. But on the other hand, plasticity is indicated when the same genotype shows different gene expression levels in response to varying environments. And so this is really fascinating to put this together and basically being able to explicitly test for adaptation using gene expression as a phenotype. Um, now, as a next step, after you've done all of that, they highlight, of course, also that ideally you want to um, connect your findings with some sort of measure of fitness. Um, you want to understand what is the impact of the phenotype on the realized fitness of the individuals. They do highlight also that this is often quite difficult to do, um, especially, you know, you have a common garden setting, now you've got your individuals in the laboratory, how do you go about connecting this to fitness? This is, this is not always easy, but this is something that people should strive to do. So this is the conceptual framework that they outline. I think it is quite fascinating. Um, and it really allows you to use these, um, you know, common guarding settings and reaction norms among populations to see whether these phenotypic differences that you may have already noticed when studying the wild populations are plastic or evolved. Um, by evolved, I mean, actually, in this case here, adaptive changes. Um, 
And this, this has a big influence on how a population can respond to ongoing climate change. Just picking up on this uh, next step, this next step you mentioned towards the end of um, connecting to fitness, why is that particularly complicated? Is it the setup? Is it uh, time consuming, costly? What would get us there? Yeah, I mean, typically fitness is really measured as differences in survival and or differences in reproductive success, because what we're really interested in is what is the likelihood of an individual to pass on its genes to the next generation, because that's what matters in evolution. If you cease to exist before you have reproduced, then your genes are lost. Um, so understanding survival needs specific experiments and reproductive output is even harder to study because you can't easily get all individuals to reproduce and think even your choice of study organism is difficult imagine you would be working on elephants it would be difficult right because first of all you can't easily design a study on sort of survival in elephants it wouldn't be really ethical um, also reproductive output takes a long time to measure so that already shows you that there's often a taxonomic bias in these studies um, when we work on you know, very small critters like insects you know fruit flies things like that it is much more straightforward to that we we could but much more easily connect studies um you know like um we have a common garden setting we're looking at gene expression phenotypes and then we connect at the end some sort of survival measure or things like that to that phenotype but yeah it's it's it depends what you're working on it is it is one of the difficult things actually to connect a lot of these studies to fitness so in some ways, for instance, if you would be the elephant researcher, you would have to often use common sense um, instead and say, well, this life history trait has a very likely impact on reproductive success for these reasons, but we can't experimentally test this. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I could imagine also a lot of conservationists maybe protesting if you start doing experiments with elephants in that way. Yes. And what about you, Zach? What are your highlights from this special feature? Well, having studied Drosophila previously, uh, one of the studies that really got my interest was in this one by Rodriguez et al., uh, titled The Genetic Basis and Adult Reproductive Consequences of Developmental Thermoplasticity. Um, so I thought it was a really exciting study. Uh, they looked at what happened to multiple different reproductive traits in fruit flies raised at different temperatures. So they used lines where previously fertility had been measured to be changed by increasing temperature. And another set of lines where males uh, did or exhibited decreased fertility as this temperature increased. Uh, so then they sequenced the genomes of individuals from both types of lines, uh, those where the fertility was not changed and where fertility was changed with increasing temperature. And then by sequencing those individuals, they were able to find genes with strong genetic differences between the two. And so they hypothesized that these genetic differences were underlying this plastic phenotypic response in those lines that did not see an effect of increased temperature. 
is it they have hypothesized that these genes were related to that? Is is this one of these things where we assume that because we find differences, then that might explain uh, this or? Exactly. Um, yeah. So the the hypothesis here, the thinking is, is that these uh, strongly uh, differentiated regions of the genome that exist between these lines are what are underlying the phenotypic differences between them. Um, but I think this does bring us to one important point of these types of genomic studies is that you do always need like the experimental validation after the fact uh, to, you know, really confirm the findings that you're inferring from the genomics. Yeah. So Marin mentioned earlier that this might be possible depending on the taxa you work on, where, for example, elephants is problematic, but fruit flies, Drosophila, is um, an excellent candidate for these types of studies. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I think fruit flies or Drosophila are maybe not the most charismatic type of animal or insect. Um, you know, most people think of them as a nuisance, but they are very powerful for these this type of work uh, for those reasons that you just mentioned. They're really easy to maintain in the lab. They're cheap to grow. They have really short generation times. Um, and they've been established so long as a model organism. There's just a lot of resources and knowledge in the field uh, to understand their genetics and biology. Um, and so, yeah, it definitely does depend on, on the taxa. Uh, but I do also think that more and more species and more taxa are becoming open to these types of studies in the future. Um, just, I think, mainly because of the decrease in genomic sequencing costs that, uh, you know, whereas 10 or 15 years ago, we really could only study the genomes and some of these model organisms that have been established for a long time. Um, it is becoming more feasible to sequence uh, many other species now. I think one of the first experiments I did as a student was on fruit flies and just going into the lab and counting how many fruit flies there were after a certain amount of time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a classic, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. And then that's still going on a lot today. So. <laughs> uh, and what was your second paper? Yeah, so uh, the second study that I found to be very interesting uh, was from Johnson, uh, Siravi, and Kelly. Um, and this was, again, on the topic of trying to understand plastic phenotypic responses. And here they were interested in a species of uh, Eastern oyster. Um, and so what they were uh, interested in studying uh, was this type of molecular modification that happens in the genome called methylation, uh, which is often responsible uh, for differential gene expression. So uh, if genes are upregulated or downregulated. And here they're trying to see if differences in methylation across individuals was responsible for plastic phenotypic responses. And here, actually, using genomics, uh, they were able to infer or provide evidence that actually this differential methylation was not responsible for plastic phenotypic responses. And so I thought that this was a really interesting example of actually uh, showing some negative evidence here um, and using genomics uh, to you know, exclude a potential mechanism uh, for phenotypic responses. Well, that's super interesting. We always talk about it's harder to publish negative results and yep. maybe this is a, a bias that we should try and, and rectify because the negative results can be as important and say as much. Okay, so now sort of the, the big question for you is uh, based on uh, all these papers included in the special feature, where do you see uh, the field of genomics uh, progressing from here? 
For the last decade or more, I think one of the biggest challenges was in being able to generate the data to enable these types of genomic studies. So sequencing individuals was incredibly expensive. It was also computationally expensive to analyze this data, and it required very specialized statistical and quantitative knowledge to study. Uh, however, over the last couple of years, the cost of sequencing has been dramatically reduced and new approaches have been developed uh, to sequence large numbers of individuals very cheaply, such as uh, genotype by sequencing or low coverage sequencing. And so many of these analyses can now be run on standard laptops or desktops. And also these types of approaches are more commonly being taught in undergrad and graduate school courses. So instead of the challenge being in generating the data where I think it was for the last decade or more, I think really the biggest difficulty going forward is trying to understand what to do with all of this data. Uh, so we can generate it cheaply, but now it's really trying to analyze it and uh, to answer meaningful questions. So I think the biggest opportunity and also maybe the biggest challenge is trying to link the information that we can learn from genomes and then applying this, uh, for example, in a conservation framework to really try to help the species and populations most at risk from climate change. One question that comes to mind now, because you mentioned that they're being taught in classes for students. If if you were a student and you were interested in genomics, besides taking a class, uh, or if you're a junior researcher, do you have any uh, tips or any must-reads? Uh, you know, I think the biggest uh, piece of advice that I would have is just to go out there and try some of this stuff. So there's, uh, you know, loads of publicly available data sets that are out there, um, such as through NCBI, or many of these public uh, repositories just full of genomic sequencing data. Uh, so all of this data exists out there. I think one of the really cool things about the community of genomics is that most of the software is all open source, meaning that it's freely available uh, and freely editable too. Um, and so you can download these types of uh, code and software to run these analyses. You can download the data yourself. And so I think the the biggest way to learn or the, the most beneficial way to learn these techniques is just to try it yourself and to do it. Um, and so all of this exists out there. So that'd be my biggest piece of advice. That is good advice. I guess that mostly goes for all subjects, like get your hands in there and, and, and try it out for yourself. And yep. Yeah. For me, that was the way that I think I was able to learn. Uh, you know, the most effective was just trying it myself. Okay. So you yourself have already touched on this, Marin, and pretty much all of the papers in some form or other say that it's important to understand the genomic basis of adaptation to different environments, especially in the context of climate change. But if you were a practitioner and your goal is a conservation of a specific species or making sure that species are thriving in their environment, um, what would be the benefits of these papers and the findings of your studies for them? Because a lot of them might not have time or access to uh, these scientific papers. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And there's actually a lot that I should probably mention about the special issue because there's relevance. Um, there's relevance that the special issue has to a number of different fields. So of course, scientists, but all the way also to sort of applied management of populations. But maybe let's start with sort of the more science sciencey part and then go to the applied um, angle so i should probably say that the contributions in the special issue they really show very nicely 
how you can integrate genomic and environmental data, and you can combine these often in cases with targeted experiments to understand and predict future population-level responses. And these future population-level responses are important for all of us. Um, so as such, these genomic studies provide really crucial insights for designing efficient conservation plans. For example, as I said before, these marine protected areas to protect um, more movement-limited species like the mullet. Um, so in the case of the Bolanger study on the mullet in the sea bream, this would mean that the mullet species would need a careful design of, for instance, interconnected marine protected areas so that the network can protect the climate adapted substructure of the species to preserve the overall ability of the species to keep pace with ongoing climate warming. But there are also challenges, of course, quite a few. And of, the Ullman and Hutchings paper really also touched on some of them. And one of the challenges is to explicitly integrate studies and to test for adaptation rather than assuming it. And I honestly think this is really important because these days, too many genomic papers simply assume adaptation, you know, following, for instance, a genome-wide study, um, doing some selection scans and things like that. And in many cases, without really investigating the natural history of the species and properly investigating the cause of the genomic changes on the phenotype and how this may impact fitness. And we have to be all very careful in the research community to not tell just so stories and make things up. So this is just, I guess, some caution to all, you know, to all of us. We all need to know, I think, about the natural history of species and place genomic analysis in the right context. And we have to try to be not too reductionist. Um, as we touched on earlier, relating findings to fitness is also continue to be a challenge. A lot of experimental designs or the species that you're working on, they don't typically lend themselves for this. So, But it is very, very important to do so. So I think researchers really need to be aware of it and they need to carefully think um, of what is the right design and how can I test it and then what sort of traits should I be focusing on? What is the relationship of these traits to reproductive output? Oh, and there's so many challenges if you ask me. You know, like even questions like it, will we be fast enough to study species before they are declining in places? And how do we resource that? Now let's think of countries that have other struggles as well, such as poverty and wars. How can they resource that? Can we even study the taxonomic diversity that is out there in the world? And other questions as well, right? I mean... These, we, we often talk about species, but really they're all an ecosystem, so they're all connected with each other and the environment. So do we even understand the potential of cascading effects? For instance, removal or decline of a species in, in food webs and how that may impact ecosystem stability. And of course, as you also said, can we translate these findings away from these findings being kept in scientific papers and stored away in libraries, can we translate them into findings that inform mitigation step and management plans? 
But I think, I mean, and I highlighted that earlier as well, I think it's a timely area to look at genomic research and it's an exciting area because the technologies are advancing at a rapid pace and we are getting better and better to capture the full extent of genomic variation and species and to analyze big data sets. But I think we also have sort of some humble insights there at the moment and we're realizing that genomics does not explain it all. And I know I've talked already about the importance of fitness and integrating natural history, but I think there's also one other exciting field that I think I should mention. Um, and this is in a way an opportunity here. And that is the field of epigenomics. So um, yeah, epigenomics is now quite a big research field. And what we mean by epigenomics are any changes in gene function that cannot be explained by changes in DNA sequence. So it's not genomics. It's, it's, it's not independent of genomics, but it's not genomics. Um, why I am quite excited about epigenetics is that it holds tremendous power to lend insights into how species can adapt to environmental change, such as climate warming. And the reason for that is, is that epigenetic changes, they're triggered directly by the environment. And we know now that they can be passed on. So they can happen in an individual, but this individual can also pass this on to its offspring. And this can be then passed on to the next generation as well. So we call this transgenerational inheritance. And that's really fascinating because it actually means that epigenetic variation has a place in evolution and in addition to DNA. And this is being increasingly realized. And because of its direct impact on gene expression, it has a direct impact on the phenotype. A reason why I'm really excited about epigenetic variation is that it's much faster. DNA, DNA mutations happen at a slow rate. So for instance, if you think of species, they have to rely on genetic mutations to occur before they can adapt to a new temperature, that is a very, very slow process. Whereas epigenetic change and impact or change to gene expression, that can happen within a few weeks. It can happen very fast. So it's a fast process and it gives species a heightened potential to respond to temperature changes. And this, of course, you can imagine some species really need that. I mean, for instance, plants, um, but also sessile animal species that can't move away or populations that have very low genetic diversity. Um, all of these species, they really require some other mechanisms or they go extinct. So epigenetics holds um, great promise to give us much greater insights to understand how species can adapt to a changing climate. So in a way it can act as a surrogate for genetic diversity in populations with low variability. And they can generate, epigenetic change can generate phenotypic variation in the absence of genetic variation and allows population to respond to environment, environmental change. So it's quite an exciting time. We are ex starting to expand our genomics framework and we are starting to include other mechanisms now such as epigenomics in our framework. So for researchers, this is quite an exciting time. But you ask me also, what does it mean for the practitioner? And of course, I said, well, 
the special issue, the contributions, they're really, there's so much in it and it's so exciting. And some of it, it goes all the way from fundamental insights to applied insights. So if we're focusing now on what practitioners can get out of it, I think nowadays with the accessibility um, or the, the, the ability, I guess, to generate thousands of molecular markers across the genome, we now have this increased power to, to run these different applications, including we can use this to look at population structure. We can plan and monitor translocations and restoration efforts, and we can understand gene flow between populations, population connectivity through migration and dispersal. And I may highlight three examples where I think practitioners can really get a lot out of these genomic studies. So using genomic studies to look at species or populations and, and how they, um, different populations along environmental gradients, you can use genomics to understand the genetic diversity and differentiation of these populations. That's really important in the design of translocations to achieve successful outcomes, because with this knowledge, you can maximize genetic diversity within functional populations, and you can minimize any effects of inbreeding or outbreeding depression. Second, um, genomic understanding of adaptive variation, like in the mullet, right? Guides implementation of the design of marine protected areas or any networks of protected areas, including their connectivity. And third is probably a topic we haven't touched so much on, but climate change is also um, fueling the rapid spread of many invasive species or pest species. And actually sampling these gives us insight into their genetic diversity and where they may have come from. And this can be really important for the design of control strategies. All right. Well, I'm glad it took a more positive turn towards the end because in the beginning I was sitting there thinking, oh, so many species, too little time, too little funding maybe. <laughs> but it does sound like it's uh, an exciting field and it's moving forward. Yeah. Uh, the papers in this special issue are certainly a good step in that direction. Zach, you also mentioned that the biggest opportunity for the field is linking it to conservation and really going in and helping to halt the biodiversity crisis. But is there anything that you see really standing in the way of this money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, m money is always a, a limiting factor here. Um, but, you know, I think there really needs to be, I think, more of a increased focus on trying to foster some of these collaborations, for example, between ecologists and uh, genomicists or geneticists and try to link some of this knowledge. Because uh, I do think that there's some of that lacking as well as just the concert or conversation about how this information can be used. Um, and then and specifically, like from the uh, ecologists or a conservationist standpoint, what sort of information that they need. Um, and so, you know, I think that more collaboration is always helpful and, of, of course, always more funding. And are there good places where you, as an ecologist, could uh, show up or um, volunteer if you are interested in collaborating? Um, at, we have a tendency maybe to go to the same conferences that are within our field. Mm -hmm. I just myself participated in a symposium with a bunch of tech people. Uh, on insect monitoring. And I know nothing about these technologies, but 
talking to them as an ecologist really opened my eyes and I was thinking um, yeah so are, are there places where you could really see these collaborations occurring yeah so you know I think over the last you know two or three years with COVID and everything you know I think we do all miss the in-person meetings uh, but I think if there's one positive that came out of all of this is that you know I think a lot of these meetings going forward will have some sort of virtual component to it as well um, and so I think that there's a lot of opportunity there for some of these people who may not be uh, involved uh, with a community or particular field uh, to have the opportunity to at least see some of the talks or be exposed to some of those conversations virtually, uh, you know, without having to invest both the time and money to attend these conferences in person. Um, and so I do think that, you know, kind of this new uh, work from home or virtual type of a world that we're now living in, I do think that there's actually opportunities there to foster some of these collaborations. Mm. This accessibility that uh, Yundam touched upon with the COVID and how people who might not be able to travel to conferences can still participate online. That got me thinking also a little about, about the spatial scale of genomics, if, if that's a thing, because just for species occurrences, we definitely have lots of blind spots. Mm -hmm. um, are there any blind spots for genomics, any areas that need more d data or where you need people from? Uh, certainly. So I think, you know, as is with most fields in the life sciences, I think that there's a, a huge bias towards uh, definitely the U.S. and then Western Europe. Uh, and so I think that, you know, there's always a need to try to increase both the diversity of people working in this field as well as the organisms that we study from other parts of the world. Um, yeah, so I think that there's there's plenty of opportunities there to try to, to increase representation. Maybe just towards the end here, who should read this special feature besides everyone? <laughs> well, yeah, I think the special issue will be of interest to anyone that wants to understand the importance of genomics in helping species to respond to changing climates. Um, could be suitable for quite junior researchers that are just starting their journey um, to study climate change responses, to get some ideas about the different approaches and the different designs and considerations and challenges, um, but also for people that, you know, have been working in that field for quite a while because the special feature or the special issue really captures so many exciting and novel um, approaches as well, all the way from epigenetics um, to DNA variation, experimental field studies. So I think there are lots of learnings in there. And the conceptual paper, of course, are also of significant importance, just allowing us to take a little step to the side and thinking quite carefully about Am I missing something? Is there something else I need to add to my study? Um, for instance, as we said, tr being sure that we're connecting genotype to phenotypes and connecting things with fitness. Um, for us, it's sometimes good also to take a step to the side and looking with a little bit of distance at our own work and seeing how we can improve it and what are the missing gaps. But even for practitioners, I think there is a lot of um, interesting work that has been covered in the special issue and just getting a little bit of an idea 
of what genomic analysis can do to understand basic properties of species. I think I work a lot in fisheries management and aquaculture these days, and I'm always amazed to realize how little we know about so many species. We know very little about them. And that's particularly true if we're looking at aquatic species. And that's probably related to our inability to, to study them easily, right? They're in the ocean, they're in the deep water. We can't see them easily. Um, some of them are in 500 meters depth, yet we fish them. So it's extractive harvesting and we have to base it on something. So there are huge knowledge gaps out there about the majority of species. Genomics can really help to fill some of these knowledge gaps. Um, if I relate it back again to fisheries management, even just knowing population structure um, of species that are being fished is really, really important. Understanding source and sink populations, because it has real consequences to how much we should be taking. But it also talks a lot about if we want to talk look at it from a conservation angle, source and sink populations, population structures, such a basic property of a species, and it's so easy to get insights into that using genomic analysis. It really tells us a lot about the resilience um, of species in different areas across their range to respond to environmental stressors, such as temperature. So as a first step, I think for practitioners, just realizing the huge power of genomic analysis and understanding these basic properties of species, that is something they can get also out from reading the special issue, because a lot of the studies have highlighted that. Yeah. And what about you, Zach? What do you think? Yeah, so our goal with this was to really kind of have both one, a survey of the current state of the field and you know the, where the field is headed, as well as a guidebook for best practices for these types of studies. And so I really think that a, a key part of the intended audience for this are young researchers just getting started in this field. And uh, we hope that they can use this as a guide for designing their own studies uh, and in their own, own organisms going forward. All right. So if you're a junior researcher wanting to get into the field of genomics or a senior researcher just wanting to brush up on all the ideas and techniques that are out there, or even if you're a practitioner, this seems to be the special issue for you. I'm going to wrap up this interview now. I want to say thank you to Marin and Zach for joining me today. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was great talking with you. Thank you, Julie. It's been great to be here and to talk to you about the special issue. As I said, it's something that um, is really close to my heart. It, and I'm glad and I'm proud of the collection of papers that we were able to put together in the special issue. And as you said, it's a must read for everyone. I think lots of people will find some interesting gems in there.